are in week two of a brand new series called Mountaintop Moments. We are walking through the Old Testament, and as we walk through the Old Testament, we are pausing at the mountains that are in the nation of Israel that are also on the pages of Scripture. So it is a seven-week uh, series that is an overview of the Old Testament. As I mentioned last week, it comes to us from uh, Walk Through the Bible. They have a series called OT Panoramic that inspired this series and gave me the seven mountains to sort of hang these sermons on. And so the seven mountains they give us are illustrated for us in this map. We're down in the south there at Mount Sinai, at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula today. To the left is Egypt. To the north, uh, or to the up and the right, if that's easier for you, is uh, the rest of the mountains that we'll be looking at. And so last week we were at Mount Moriah. In a couple weeks we're going to be at Mount Nebo. I'll be there in about an hour as well. There's other mountains we're going to see as we move our way through this series. So last week we were at Genesis chapter 22. And we're looking at Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Today, we're going to be at Exodus chapter 19 at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so a lot has happened between Genesis 22 and Exodus 19. Maybe it's just a few pages in your Bible that separate these two stories, but a lot has happened in between. And so last week, we had Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah, and they had a promise from God that through Abraham's lineage, there would be a mighty nation And they would be in this promised land. But where we left Abraham last week, he had one son and the promise of this nation that was to come. So what happens in the the pages between Genesis 22 and Exodus 19 is those three people become tens of thousands over hundreds of years. But they do transition from living in Israel to living down in Egypt. A famine comes and they relocate to Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, they multiply... Until finally, the Egyptians realize, oh, we have more slaves than we do people. If they uprise, they will overthrow us. So we should kill off all the boys that are born to the Jewish people so that these Jewish slaves that we have won't overpower us. And it's in that context that Moses is born. And maybe you've heard the story of Moses over the years, how his mother uh, wanted to preserve him from being killed, so she puts him in a little basket and floats him down the river to where a princess of Egypt is bathing. She scoops up the baby, can't stand to see this baby die, takes him home to the palace and raises him as one of her own. And so Moses spends those first 40 years learning Egyptian culture and all the ways of the Egyptians until finally he does uh, murder an Egyptian and he has to flee Egypt as a, an outlaw, and he goes out into the wilderness. And this is in the wilderness is where Moses first encounters Mount Sinai. Now here's a little detail they don't tell you very often, but um, it's kind of helpful. If you see the Mount Horeb in the Bible, it's the same mountain as Mount Sinai. It goes by two different names. And so when we look at Exodus chapter 3, Moses' first encounter at Mount Sinai, we can miss it because they call it Mount Horeb. But it's the same mountain, and this is the account from Exodus 3. Moses' first approach to the mountain, it says, Now Moses was keeping his flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. So this is God's first encounter with Moses at Mount Sinai at this burning bush. And from the burning bush, God calls Moses to go down into Egypt and to set his people free from slavery. 
That's what Moses does, delivers the people out of Egypt, and they escape, and they're headed to the promised land. But before they get to the promised land, they stop again at Mount Sinai. Maybe Moses knows that this is where God speaks to him, but however Moses gets there, there he is, back at Mount Sinai. But where is Mount Sinai? We showed it to you on a map, but here's a little secret. Um, if I say things with confidence up here, you believe them. Thank you, Katie. She's lovely to have in the service. Um, I don't know if that's where Mount Sinai is or not. I don't know. Now, if you look at a map today, that's the mountain on our maps today that gets called Mount Sinai. Here's the problem. None of us know, but archaeologists and historians are actively studying, how did they leave Egypt and get to the Promised Land? What was their route? And so as we dig up thousands of years of history, we all have all these theories of how they got to the Promised Land. So I'll show you a couple maps, because I love maps. Here's the first one. These... uh, is the northern route of escape from Egypt. And it goes in a northern path, and it shows how they would cross through waters, and it shows where the Mount Sinai could be, a little red triangle there. But there's a central route that it could have been, so maybe they took a central route. Maybe the green line illustrates the path as they left Egypt and headed to the Promised Land. Or maybe it was the southern route. And so the southern route has them going all the way down to the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula to the mountain that we're identifying today to Mount Sinai. We have another picture that illustrates all three options. So one of these days, you can go with me. We'll travel there. We'll walk each path. We'll have our backpacks on. We'll go up each mountain. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Okay. We'll just email me if you want to come. We'll block out some time. Uh, Eventually, they do enter the promised land. That's the purple line that finishes it out. Um, And so... We're just going to go with, for simplicity's sake, Mount Sinai and the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, which looks like this if you were to go there today. Very uninhabited still, but if you need a visual in your mind as we read these stories, any one of the options for mountains is going to look pretty similar to this one in that part of the world. So what happens at Mount Sinai? Well, when they come to Mount Sinai, God gives them the law. So what we have to do is go back in time and a story that maybe we're familiar with. We should really pause and just appreciate some of these little details. When they came to Egypt, we're told in Genesis that it was 70 people. And so remember, Joseph, he travels to Egypt and his brothers come. There's a famine. And then the nation of Israel is 70 people at that time. And they relocate to Egypt. 70 people. 70 people don't have like laws and customs and holidays. What happens over 400 years in Egypt, they move from living there in favor to living there in bondage and slavery. And when they leave, we're not sure how many there are, but there are certainly at least tens of thousands of Jewish people who have now been liberated and are on their way to the promised land. What do they have? Well, they have Egyptian customs, they have Egyptian holidays, they have Egyptian laws. And God's saying, no, 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 that's not my way. You're going to stop on the way to the promised land at the foot of Mount Sinai, and I'll give you your laws. And I'll give you your customs and I'll give you your holidays. And I'll show you how to live according to my way. Because you're going to leave behind the Egyptian gods and you're going to leave behind the Egyptian laws. And you're going to follow my laws and I am your God. So stop at Mount Sinai and I'll give you the structure by which you can inhabit the promised land and live a peaceful, orderly, flourishing life. And that's what God gives them at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, Moses is the only one who goes to the mountaintop. These are mountaintop moments. Moses is the only one who goes up. The rest of the nation of Israel gather at the base of the mountain. 
And this is what they witness. So in Exodus chapter 19, we see what it's like sometimes when God speaks. What's it like to be at the base of the mountain when Moses goes up? So in Exodus chapter 19, in verse 16 to 20, it says this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord was descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound of the trumpets, it grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. You know, sometimes when you're reading through the Bible and you're like, oh, I wish God would just talk to me like he talked to our forefathers. And then you read a passage like this, and you're like, I'm comfortable with God speaking to me through the word. (laughs) It's like, and Moses went up into an earthquake, fire, lightning, and thunder to talk to God. And so that's the scene as they're at Mount Sinai. We don't know how long that scene plays out. It's a little bit hard to understand the timeline, but we think the children of Israel were at the base of Mount Sinai for about two years. For about two years, they were at that base camp, and they had that visual reminder of God and what he had called them to obey. Moses went up and down a number of times, And there they stood in camp. We don't have time to go through a two-year experience and all that God gave them at Mount Sinai. And so to summarize and to frame up this mountaintop moment, I'm just going to read for you this first encounter with God at Mount Sinai. And so before he descended in that amazing way of fire and lightning and thunder, first in Exodus 19, 1-6, this is how it reads. So on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you up to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Mount Sinai is where God brings his people after he saves them. First comes salvation from slavery. Then comes a call to obey God at Mount Sinai. And they are yet on their way to the promised land. And so what happens between the moment of salvation and the promised land? Obedience. Obedience. So as we look at this passage today, it's a very similar structure to your life and my life as it is to this story. We're going to look back this morning and ask ourselves the question, where do we go after we've been saved? Well, none of us, we can all, we can barely wait to get to the promised land. But all of us are going to stop at Mount Sinai along the way and be called to obey God's voice. So our outline for the morning is just from these verses 4 to 6. Just like the people of Israel, we should receive our salvation. 
We should obey God's voice. And then we should be a blessing. God calls them to be a kingdom of priests. Bless the other nations that are around them. So let's start with the first point. Receive salvation. This comes to us from verse 4. God says to Moses, this is what I wanted you to tell the people. Before you tell them the law, before you walk down with those Ten Commandments, Moses, before all of that, I want you to tell the people this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The foundation is our salvation. The foundation for his next communication of obedience is the salvation that they have experienced from slavery in Egypt. So how did God save them? Because he's saying, tell them, remember what I did to the Egyptians. So what did God do to the Egyptians? All right, there were 10 plagues. Let me walk you through them quickly. This is what God did to the Egyptians. People who said, I will take God's people and put them in slavery. Well, he's, you got to remember though, Egypt, you go to any museum and you can learn about Egypt, right? And, and they were a very powerful nation at that time. And the ancient Near East, Egypt was very powerful. So how was God going to liberate a whole bunch of slaves from the most powerful nation in the world? And here's how he did it. First, he turned their river into blood. The Nile River, he turns to blood. That's the first plague. They had a God of the Nile River. And God is demonstrating, okay, you have this whole pantheon of gods. Okay, God of the Nile River, I'm powerful than him. And you know that Nile River, it's your source of life. It's a river in the desert. It's got fish in it. It's got your source of water is now blood. That's the first thing he does to the Egyptians. Then he sends frogs. Frogs fill their homes. It fills the streets, which seems like a strange plague, doesn't it? Until you realize that the, in their pantheon of gods, they had this frog-headed goddess of birth. So God is just filling their land with these frogs. And then they all die. And they all rot. And then comes the next plague of gnats destroying their god of the desert. Then comes flies, which destroying the symbol of their fly god. Then comes death of their livestock, destroying the god and their pantheon that, that made them have productive cattle and livestock. See, what God is, is doing is he's destroying not just their pantheon of gods, he's also destroying their economy. He's saying, you, you have some value in your livestock, don't you? That's how you trade. That's how you move. That's how you eat. Well, now you don't have that anymore. We think the Egyptians were probably people that valued health and beauty. And so the next plague is boils. And their goddess of health and beauty, they're destroyed as are the health and beauty of the people. The next plague is hail. Destroys their crops and all the gods that give them their harvest. Then comes the locust. Because whatever crops survived the hail will now be destroyed by the locusts. So now what has God done? He's destroyed their pantheon of gods, showing them that he's more powerful than any of their gods. And then he's wiped out their economy. You have no more crops. You have no more livestock. How are you going to carry on as a nation now? And so he's, the ninth plague is he sends darkness over the face of Egypt, destroying their sun god, which has perhaps their most uh, powerful god in their pantheon. An illustration of the hopelessness that the Egyptian people must have felt. 
But his final plague is the most personal of all. He sends the angel of death. He says, unless you gather inside of a home that has blood over the doorposts of the home, then the firstborn son and all those homes will die. And that is what breaks Pharaoh's back. That's what causes Pharaoh to release the children of Israel to off to their promised land and to worship their God and to get out of his country. And so they head off. But God isn't done with the Egyptians yet, is he? Because the Egyptians may not have crops and they may not have livestock and they may have lost a whole lot of things and be just hanging on as a nation, but they still have a powerful army. So here comes the army and God says, bring the army on. Bring them right into the Red Sea because I've parted the Red Sea and bring the army in, yeah, Pharaoh, right into the midst of the dry ground in the Red Sea. And then God brings the waters over them and destroys the Egyptians' army. So God says to the people of Israel, listen, remember what I did for you. Remember how I took the most powerful nation and I just eliminated them. I did that for you. I saved you. I bore you up on eagle's wings. I saved you. Remember that. And then also remember as you were on eagle's wings and you were in the desert headed here and you got hungry, I had food fall from the sky. Don't forget that either. And when you were thirsty, I made water flow out of a rock. And so remember, I saved you. I bore you up on eagle's wings. I am your God and I have saved you. That's what God calls Moses to tell them first. Remember your salvation. So as we read this story today, we're in a very similar situation. Exodus is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of our salvation throughout the rest of scripture. We're going to say, look back to Exodus. That's a picture of our salvation. He has set us free from slavery. He has set us free from Egypt. That's why I asked Diana to sing. You stepped into my Egypt. You took me by the hand. And you marched me out in freedom into the promised land. Because this is a story of our salvation. Now, we're modern people. We don't worship the sun. and We don't worship frog-headed goddesses. We, are, we, we believe in science. We are reasonable people. We would never have such idolatry. We're not enslaved. And yet sometimes I think, if we were all a bit honest with ourselves, we live with a bit of illusion of freedom. We live like slaves to our phones. The minute they buzz, we live as slaves to our jobs. We live as slaves to our debt. We live as slaves to this peer pressure. We live as slaves to the public image that is popularized. We worship different gods in different ways. We worship some form of a screen god, some form of an entertainment god, some form of a news outlet god, some form of a politician god, some form of like pleasure and comfort god. We've got a whole pantheon of gods in the Egypt that we live in. You look around us, you look at the culture we live in, it's not called Egypt, but it is wrecked with drug addiction and high divorce rates and prisons that are full of men that should be home with their families. It's full of surveys that talk about how 60% of Americans are lonely on a regular basis. Depression and anxiety wreck us. We're plagued by fear and greed and shame. We have a lack of purpose and a lack of genuine connection. So the question for us this morning is, God delivered you from that? Has God delivered you from your Egypt? Has he reached in and taken you by the hand and led you to freedom? Do you recognize that he's greater than your addiction, that he's greater than your phone, that he gives you a sense of identity and a purpose, that Jesus is your savior, that God is your father who loves you, that the church is your family that welcomes you and embraces you? 
Has Jesus stepped into your Egypt? Has he borne you up on his wings? And if he hasn't, then the invitation is wide open. Jesus says, seek and you will find. Ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be open to you. Jesus says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you can't look back in your past right now and with confidence say, God has delivered me. I have his salvation. He has forgiven me and I have been liberated. It doesn't mean you don't struggle. It doesn't mean you don't have doubts. It doesn't mean it's not hard. But if you can't say, no, I've, I've been set free, then don't track with me the rest of the sermon. But for those of us who have been set free, who are Christians, then you need to pay attention because he takes us from salvation and he calls us to obedience at the foot of Mount Sinai. He says, obey my voice. Verse five, now therefore. Remember what I did to the Egyptians. Remember I bore you up on eagle's wings. Okay, because of that, because I saved you, now, therefore, now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. God's about to speak. He's gonna give them all kinds of instruction, but the ones we often remember are, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord their God in vain. You will remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You'll honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. If they would have simply followed those 10 laws, they would have flourished. If you and I would simply follow those 10 laws, we would flourish as well. We're called to obey God's voice. That's not a novel sermon point. It's not a really novel or special observation. If you gathered here today, if you're listening with us online, then you understand that to some extent God expects your obedience. So we won't belabor that point. The point I would like us all to see, though, is the timing, because the timing is critical. He invites us to obey him after he saves us. God saves them, and then he leads them to Mount Sinai and calls them to obedience. First Exodus, then Sinai. They were not saved because of their obedience. And you are not saved because of your obedience. You are saved, and after you are saved, God calls you to obedience. And his hope is that you are filled with such gratitude for the salvation and the freedom that you're experiencing that you will gladly obey him with gratitude in your heart. And it's the same for the people of Israel. It's the same for you and I. The problem is we live amongst a people that are not obeying God's voice. So the timing gets tricky. We look around our society and we see people that aren't obeying God's voice. And sometimes our inclination is to grab them and bring them to Mount Sinai and say, Obey God's voice. But if their heart is still enslaved, if they're still living in Egypt, if they haven't experienced his grace and forgiveness, then what motivates them to obey? Conformity to some law? That's not what God wants. God wants people's hearts. He's after their hearts. And so he moves heaven and earth to capture our hearts. And once he has our hearts, then he invites us to obey. And sometimes, out of the best of motives, we grab people kicking and screaming and say, come to Mount Sinai and obey God. We ought to be pursuing people's hearts. And as their hearts change, then they most certainly should hear God's call to obey. 
People around us advocate for things we disagree with. They push agendas that are contrary to God's law. And they live lives that are in direct opposition to God's word. But let's not drag them kicking and screaming to Mount Sinai. Let's live as a kingdom of priests. Let's go out into this world and bless people so that we can maybe capture their hearts with the good news of God's love for them. And once their hearts have been transformed, then we can call them to live lives in obedience to God's word. We do that by being a blessing, and that's what concludes the last point for today. Be a blessing. It's from verses 5 and 6. He says, You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's a great translation for this verse. I mean, I like it. I don't know much about it. It's called the Brenton Septuagint translation. But here's what it says. It says, You will be to me a peculiar people. I like it. It's memorable. God's call to us is that we would obey And he's saying, if you obey me, you will be a peculiar people. People will look at you and be like, how could somebody be that kind? I don't understand it. People aren't kind to them, and they just respond with kindness. That's peculiar. Those Christians are a peculiar people. They forgive. I mean, they are treated poorly. They're not listened to. They're not respect. And and yet they respond with respect. And they respond as people who are listeners. And they respond as people who are kind. That is so strange. This group of people, they're so peculiar. You see how that happens, though? That happens as we obey God's voice. As we obey God, we go out of here and we live as this kingdom of priests. It's hard to... We have different ideas in our minds about what a priest does or who a priest is. If you just get back to the root of it, a priest is just at its center a mediator between God and man. So God calls us to leave here today and mediate God's goodness to this world. He says, go out there and be a kingdom of priests. Be so peculiar. Be so filled of the Spirit that you live lives that are so extraordinarily full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. It will bless the world that's watching. That's a direct command on our lives, ladies and gentlemen. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, sits down and he writes a book. We call it First Peter. And this is what he says to us, the church. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He uses the exact same language from Exodus 19. Peter says, that's not a story from the past just for you to think about. That's you. You are Christian. You're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And you are set apart as God's own possession. And you are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Out of Egypt and into his light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see what he's doing? He's saying, based on your salvation, based upon your deliverance, based upon the mercy that you have experienced, okay, now listen, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves amongst the Gentiles honorably, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How do we do this? Peter says, I'll I'll, I'll tell you how to do it. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
Whether it's the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent to him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's what we are called to. We are called to live as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart, and to go out of here today and to be a blessing as we obey God and the call he has put upon our lives. And that's how we do it. So I don't know what you needed to hear this morning. If you needed to be hear an invitation to receive salvation, or if you need to be reminded about what a great salvation you have experienced so that that might motivate you to hear God's voice and obey him. Or maybe you need to be inspired that you aren't called to some kind of boring, stale obedience. You are called to an obedience that will shine so brightly as you leave here that it will cause people to, it will grab their attention. And though they may speak evil against you, they will see your good works and they will glorify God because of that. But let's all keep it in the right order. Let's be careful not to force obedience on people whose hearts are not yet changed. Let's be people that are focused on heart change, not outward conformity. And let's obey our Savior out of of a spirit of gratitude for his great salvation.